0: Bank stocks are cheap. Does that make them a buy? This is Industry Focus. Hello, and welcome to Industry Focus Financials Edition. For The Motley Fool, I'm Christine Hargis and I'm here with our senior banking analyst, John Maxfield. John, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. Thank you very much for asking, Christine.
0: Awesome. So Today, we want to talk about whether or not now is a good time to buy bank stocks. The banking industry, on a valuation basis, looks pretty cheap. It's trading at roughly 17.6 times, trailing 12 months earnings, whereas the broader S&P 500 is more like around 18.8. So, you look at that and you think, okay, we've got one of two things going on here. Either this lower valuation reflects some amount of lower profitability prospects going forward, or people are just crazy and these stocks are a bargain of course, it's probably not one extreme or the other, but it's pretty clear that there's still some concern about the industry, which took such a beating during the financial crisis and in some areas has not even recovered. So John, what do you think are some of the primary reasons that banks are trading at such low valuations?
1: Well, I think it all boils down to kind of um, a hangover, if you will, from the financial crisis, right? So if you look back over the, as you know, and maybe listeners know, I, I look at these through a historical lens. But if you look back over the last, say, 100 years, we've seen a relatively large cycle uh, with banks that started back with the Great Depression. And for roughly two or three decades after the Great Depression, banks just didn't make as much money. And while we don't have very good data on their price valuations, because they didn't make as much money, it seems safe to assume that their their stocks were trading for lower valuations. Um, And we're seeing that same thing since the financial crisis, and there's probably two principal explanations for that. The first one, um, as a lot of people know, banks have been subject to um, an enormous amount of legal liability since the financial crisis. I don't know what the most recent figure is, but I know that maybe six months ago I calculated for Bank of America, which is the hardest hit on the legal side, it had something like 91 $91.2 91.2 billion dollars worth of legal judgments and settlements and things like that since the financial crisis. So 91.2 billion dollars. I mean, that sounds like a lot, and it is a, it is just a ton of money when you consider that Bank of America isn't e- even earning 20 billion dollars a year right now. Now some of that was monetary, some of that was non-monetary, but but that's a lot. So you have that legal, you have that legal aspect, and then you also have in in the wake of the financial crisis. The Congress came through and passed dog-frank regu- regulations, and then there were some kind of uh, related regulations um, passed in, in Europe that had to do, that we follow, that have to do with how much capital banks are required to hold. So, when you add in all of those regulations, you're adding in a ton of additional compliance costs at these different banks. So when you raise costs, you're going to lower your profitability. So you have the legal stuff that's lowering profitability, and you have the compliance costs that are lowering profitability. And then just one kind of final thing that's hitting the banks, um, because many banks were hit so hard during the crisis, their uh, leaders are—they seem to be more risk-adverse right now than they were in, say, 2005 and 2006. So that's causing them to take fewer risks. And when banks take fewer risks, that means that they make lower revenue.
0: So touching on that legal liability, are those huge expenses done, like you've absolutely spent those on your lawyers and, and whatnot, or is that potential what you could end up owing? And so it, it, it's really more of a, an uncertainty factor than a fixed expense.
1: Well, that... The legal expenses are starting to tailor off. There's no question about that. I mean, we're running up against uh, statute of limitations with, with a lot of that mortgage stuff. Um, and a lot of those big settlements have now gone through, and there's only so many big settlements. I mean, the government can't be charging the banks with the same exact thing over and over and over again. So we've had a lot of the big ones go through. But because of the increased regulatory um, um, oversight of the banks, they're now picking up all these other things that banks are doing wrong. Like... Uh, fixing energy markets, fixing interest rate markets, fixing foreign exchange markets. And these banks are incurring uh, billion-dollar, regularly still incurring billion-dollar settlements with the government over these kind of new things that are popping up that that the regulators, now that they're deeper in these banks, that that they're noticing. Um, So I I can't remember exactly how you phrase the question, but um, we are seeing legal costs go down um, so these—it's not like these are added to their fixed expenses, but we just don't know how much longer these elevated exp- legal expenses are going to are they going to last? Is it going to last another year? Is it going to last another two years? Another five years? And that's the reason that uh, that investors are looking at these stocks and thinking like, wow, these their expense base, you know, at least for the foreseeable future is just too high to earn a, to earn a lot of money.
0: So uncertainty is definitely coming into play in that aspect. What about another thing that you haven't mentioned yet, and this is something that we've talked about quite a few times on this show. What about the role of interest rates? I mean, they're at a low, and there's all sorts of expectations that eventually they're going to have to normalize. Does that come into play here? What's the story there?
1: So I would say that, you know, aside from the expense angle, the biggest X factor, if you will, right now are low interest rates. So if you look at how banks make money, they they make money in two different ways. And and I'm talking right now about the really the really big banks. They make about half their money from fee based businesses. You know, if let's say you have a, a checking account with them and they charge you whatever, thirty five bucks a year to have that checking account. And then let's say you have a few overdrafts on it and they charge whatever it is, forty dollars per overdraft. Um so so you have those fees that they can make money on, and then they also have, you know, things like asset management, they have investment banking, blah, 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 blah. But those are all fee-based services, that's about 50% of the revenue. And then 50, roughly 50% of the uh, big bank's revenue comes from interest rate arbitrage. So, you know, you take deposits and you pay a very low, either 0% interest rate on those deposits or a really, really low interest rate on those deposits. And then you take that same money and you invest it in assets that yield, say, 3% or 4% more. Than the cost of those deposits, so you have that spread between short, you know, your, you know, what you're bringing in from your assets and what you're paying on your liabilities. So that's about 50%. Well, when interest rates are really low, what banks have done over the past 40 years is they've tied the lion's share of their loan books to short-term interest rates. So if short, and so let, let's say interest rates are short-term interest rates are 1%. They'll say, well, we'll lend to commercial lenders, which that. It may, that's the lion's share of what a bank has on its, on its balance sheet in terms of loans. They'll loan to commercial lenders at say three or four percent above one percent. So regardless of what long-term interest rates are doing, banks will always make money um, on their lending on their loan portfolios. However, if you look at when you when you take that all this into consideration, when short-term interest rates are they're almost zero percent right now. They're like I don't know the point. 0.25%, I mean, they're just, just ridiculously low because the Federal Reserve is still trying to get make sure the economy is uh, up and going. Um, that drives a bank's revenue down because if, let's say, short-term interest rates are 2%, banks are going to be earning, let's say, 6% on those loans. But if interest rates are 0%, they're going to be earning 4% on the loans. And that 2% difference is an enormous difference when it comes to a banks' revenue. So to kind of to, to wrap all this up, once interest rates do in fact normalize, if and when they do, and I I believe that they will. I don't know, I have no clue whatsoever when that will happen, but I I think that if you look over history, you know, we go through these cycles when interest rates are low, interest rates are high, and then they kind of normalize. And I I think we're kind of headed in that direction, at least all the evidence points to that 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 I can see. Um, When that happens, when those short-term interest rates will go up, banks will earn a lot more in interest income, um, and and that will really help them out.
0: And so do you think the low valuations across the industry as a whole are the result of people holding off from investing until you see those rates go back up and banks become more profitable?
1: I think so, absolutely. And I say that because institutional investors, your big investors, your pension funds, your, your endowments, um, your hedge funds, a, a lot of these guys are looking out, um, particularly your hedge funds or your more frequent traders, they're looking at a year and 18 months out in terms of the revenue projections. Um, and their and their earnings projections so if those projections are going to be significantly lower because short-term interest rates are still low and because expenses are still elevated um, then yes short-term interest rates most certainly are factoring into current valuations and that's where the opportunity for the individual investor comes in because individual investors don't have to give um, a quarterly report an annual annual report to the investors, in, you know, to other people who have money invested in the funds, um, so you can take a longer time horizon to investing, not only in bank stocks but investing in, in stocks in general, and that will give you the opportunity to benefit from these longer-term trends.
0: And so, uh, of course, when we talk about uh, you know, is this a good time to buy bank stocks? We are taking that that longer holding period, but so for your individual investors do you think, even understanding that we can't time the market, do you think that banks are a buy right now? And are there any particular values that stand out to you?
1: So let's just keep one thing in mind, and that is that a modern economy has to have banks. You just have to have them. So we know there's going to be banks around. And we know that unless banks just overall are nationalized, which I have a hard time believing is going to happen certainly at any time in the near future or ever. Unless that happens, there's got to be a profit incentive for people to, to put capital into the banking industry. So you're going to have a bank industry, you're going to have an, and it's going to be profitable. And at some point, the profit's going to have to, you know, kind of settle at a point where individual investors are comfortable getting into that. And we've kind of seen over time that that's in that 12, 13, 14 percent return on equity, which, you know, as soon bank can earn that, that means they're, they're exceeding the cost of capital, which is 10 percent. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity for profit there. But the question is, is which banks in particular are going to be the bit, biggest beneficiary? Because the other thing we know about banks is that they are extremely prone to failure on an individual basis. So what you have to do is not only you know, do you know? Can you feel comfortable? Or let me let me just restate that for a second. Um, you can feel comfortable in the fact that banks will be around and that they'll be profitable, but you got to be really careful in selecting the ones that you invest in. And this is something we've talked about a lot on this program. The way, the best way, in my opinion, at least, and this is something that I think about and read about constantly and I write about all the time. Um, in my opinion, the best way to determine whether or not a particular bank is going to be safe and make it through the next crisis, which is inevitable, um, is to look at how they did in the last crisis. And so if you look at that, you're going to go with your, your Wells Fargo's and your J.P. Morgan's, your U.S. Bank bankors, your M&T banks, banks like that that have not only cracked the nut on cross-selling and, and generating a lot of revenue, but at the other end of that spectrum, and this is really another extreme, they're also extremely... Good risk managers, and that's the thing that you're going to want to look for um, in a bank stock.
0: And are these really high-quality, well-performing stocks also trading at inexpensive valuations?
1: Yeah, I mean, right. If you look at any type of company, any type of bank, like the the better ones are going to be trading for higher valuations. Your U.S. Bankers, your, your you know your Wells Fargos are going to be trading at you know give or take two times book value relative to your Citigroups and your Bank Americas that are trading for discounts to book value. So like 25% below book value. So yeah, you're gonna be paying a lot more for your good banks, but your good banks, not only do they earn a lot more money and therefore are able to pass it on to you via dividends and share buybacks and, and increases in book value, but they're also in a much better position to not only survive the next inevitable crisis, which could be five years down the road, could be 20 years down the road, Um, but even to thrive through that crisis, which is exactly what we've seen with J.P. Morgan, which is exactly what we've seen with Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo, going into the crisis, was just a regional bank that was basically operating to the west of the Mississippi. But because it was so well managed going into the crisis, it was able to pick up Wachovia, which was actually larger than Wells Fargo, but extremely poorly managed, and Wells Fargo was p- able to pick up at pennies on the dollar. So, it more than doubled in size in the midst of the worst economic downturn since the, since the Great Depression.
0: So, definitely seems like you are a fan of Wells. Would you say that that is, looking at the trade-off between getting something at a good value and getting a really good quality bank, would that be your number one pick?
1: Well, I would say Wells or U.S. Bancorp, and, and, and those two are actually related, because if, if you look at um, kind of the guys, it, well, U.S. Bancorp was, it, it's a large regional bank, it's a fraction of the size of Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan, uh, Citigroup, and Bank of America, but if you look at kind of the founding story of U.S. Bank Bancorp, it was founded in a merger of, of two other, or of two regional banks, and the, and the guys who brought those two banks together, they were two brothers, they were CEOs of these two different banks, those, those guys Learned, they got their formative banking experience from Wells Fargo. So they basically apply Wells Fargo's model at U.S. Bank Corp. So if you're looking at, and and then when you consider that Wells Fargo is not only Warren Buffett, who's the greatest investor of all time, that's his biggest holding, um, but he has also said that he and Charlie Munger, who's the vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, they gauge all other investments that they make based off of Wells Fargo, that it is the gold standard. So when you take those two things into consideration, I would say that, yeah, investors, if you're going to be buying bank stocks, uh, you could do a whole lot worse than, than banks like Wells Fargo and U.S. Bank or And as a result, at least in my opinion, uh, those are probably the best bank stocks, irrespective of value that, that you can buy today or, quite frankly, at any time.
0: Well, there you have it, folks. If you're looking for any more information on either of those two banks or really any of the the banks that we cover at The Motley Fool, definitely check out fool.com. There's some awesome articles by both John and uh, all of our other team of bank analysts. Uh, Before we sign off, I want to let everyone know that we are offering membership to The Motley Fool's flagship stock-picking product called Stock Advisor at the lowest rate available for our awesome Industry focused listeners. So if you're interested in learning some more about the product, which I can tell you is fantastic and has for sure informed some of my own portfolio decisions, check out focus.fool.com. Again, that's focus.fool.com.
1: Let me me just add one thing. I know you're trying to wrap up, Christine, so sorry. But if you look at, if you're just talking about investing, there's a few things that we know, but our Stock Advisor service has consistently beaten the market for well over a decade. So if you manage your own money for retirement, and if you in any way are interested in a really high-level, high-quality service, that gives you, helps you decide which stocks to buy, and this service has a proven track record, then Stock Advisor is definitely something that, that you should look into.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for adding that, John. And folks, thanks for listening. Um, as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely what you hear.